Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. It's an honor to have Chauncey Mayfield on the show. So uh, Chauncey is actually an expert in commercial real estate. He said he had about $1.5 billion, billion with a B, under management at one time. So he has a lot of knowledge to bring, and I look forward to hearing all the knowledge, expertise, and the journey that he's been through, and I'm sure you're going to really enjoy it. Stay tuned. Chauncey, good to have you on, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, like, uh, so I know just just growing up, you you grew up in the South. You grew up during the time of actually segregation, and you were in the midst of that transition from segregation to not segregation. Talk about that and what that experience actually did for you, to you, and, and how it helped inform who you are now. Well, I, I got to tell you, it was it, during my formative years, but nonetheless, it was probably the most impressionable years of my life. Um, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. And my dad was a civil rights lawyer, and, and he transitioned later on into a uh, criminal lawyer. So in, as a civil rights lawyer, he was in the heart. I mean, he was right in the smack of things that were happening. So much so that on several occasions, um, my older sister and I were uh, taken away from our house with police guards and all that kind of stuff because there were supposedly bombs that were set under, my, under our house. And... And, you know, my dad was the, the, the focus of... Uh, How old were you doing this happen? I was probably eight, nine years old. Oh, wow. And uh, so having seen how my dad stood up and having seen how he was... He, I mean, he literally made his career in representing civil rights um, uh, demonstrators. Right. And, you know, I grew up with a guy by the name of Jose Williams being, you know, a, a, a fixture in our house. Well, who was Jose Williams, people that don't uh, know? Jose Williams was uh, uh, Dr. King's uh, right-hand guy. He was literally on the the uh, balcony of the Lorraine Hotel when Dr. King was assassinated. Wow. And um, Jose uh, started his civil rights career in Savannah, Georgia. And he and my dad were very close. In fact, he... Uh, convinced my dad to represent uh, the civil rights demonstrators, which was not necessarily a popular thing to do back uh, then. I'm sure it wasn't. And uh, to the extent that my dad worked for a more conservative, older African-American lawyer, and the guy simply told him, if you want to get involved with that civil rights stuff, you got to leave here. Wow, really? And he left, and uh, he started his own practice. My mother was his secretary. Wow. And, uh, you know, she would leave and pick up my sister and I from school every day. And we played in the conference room. So wow. we, we had a we had a bird's eye view of what was happening. <laughs> I imagine what that would do when you when you think about you see your father have that courage, because that's not it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's never it's not easy now to get up and leave and leave an established business or occupation. I can't imagine we're talking whatever in the 50s or the 60s where you're doing it. and You're saying you're going to get up and leave and find your own way. I imagine that informed you when you became an entrepreneur, no? Oh, without, without a doubt, because I saw, I saw the civil rights, I saw demonstrations, so protests. I, I walked in uh, two, of the, uh, uh, two, two of the marches that were characterized as the Poor People's March. Yes. Uh, Savannah and, and Charleston. My dad led the one in Savannah and then the one in Charleston, South Carolina. But more importantly, what I saw was I saw a guy, my dad, that was unapologetically black. Yep. And in the thing that he taught my sisters and my brother and I was that it doesn't matter. You know, we can get all the laws changed. But at the end of the day, you've got to be excellent at what you do. Amen. That's the only thing that's going to keep you there. What about, what about my parents say? You got to be. You got to work twice as hard to get half as much. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And 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 the thing that I think is most important, and that unfortunately we don't see a lot of it today, is that some African Americans are apolog apologetic for being African American. Yeah, a lot, a lot, a, a lot of us are. Exactly. Like we we got to apologize for being black or. Absolutely. Saying we're black or being proud of being black as if there's something wrong with that. Yeah. You know, I look at it and I'm, I'm sure uh, that, that, that you've seen it. I want to talk about your experiences, particularly. I know you dealt with some made men. And 
I've seen, I won't say that they're made men, I guess, but I, <laughs> the people I've dealt with, but I've dealt with people who I know in the union industry, right? Sure. Like, I don't know if they're made men. Some of them might be, and they didn't tell me, who knows? But, um, but I noticed that, you know, the Italians that are in the union, they're proud to be Italian. Nobody, nobody, no, no, nobody puts their head down and says, well, I don't want to make sure, I don't want to offend people by saying I'm Italian. And the Irish go on, they say they're proud to be Irish. And then, by the way, I see nothing wrong with that. That's right. I like, agree. And, and w- there's nothing wrong with us saying we are proud to be African-American. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious to see what you've learned. Like, so you learned that from your father. Yes. And um, was there any of that taught when you, I know you dealt with some of these, some, 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 some guys who were in the mob. Mm-hmm. Was there any, did you learn anything from them along those lines or any other things that you can just kind of think about from those experiences that you had and just, just sitting in the room? Well, I, I tell you that once again, after the civil rights movement or the, the more active demonstrations where, where students were getting arrested, my dad transitioned his law practice into doing criminal law and he represented some, some major criminals and what was always striking to me about them is they were as professional about what they did as any doctor, lawyer, or dentist I ever ran, ran across. Wow. Yep. And they approached their profession with seriousness. And, you know, that was their job, whatever it was, you know. You didn't have to agree with it, but it was striking to me that they had a, a you know, when my dad talked about excellent, they, these guys were, and women were excellent at what, what they did. Okay, it was illegal. But that was very telling to me. And, you know, while I grew up in Savannah, I, uh, I went to undergrad in Tuskegee, in Tuskegee, Alabama. And my first job out of uh, undergrad. And Tuskegee is a historically black college. I want to definitely talk about your experience at a historically black college and how that shaped you too. Oh, but, absolutely. But go ahead. Um, you know, my first job was in Boston. And, you know, I've always had a passion for real estate. I didn't have any money when I came out of college. And I would, you know, scramble around and try and find deals or deals that I thought I could put together. And a lot of them failed. And the first deal I did was a guy I played softball with. And he played, he, he owned an investment firm. And he asked me, he said, Chauncey, what's your dream for your life? I said, I want to get into the real estate business. At the time, I was doing manufacturing at Polaroid. And... About three months later, he called me. He said, I got a house I want you to buy, a three-flat. And I said, that's great. I don't have any money. He said, don't worry about it. I got an investor for you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I got a house, got an investor. What's the problem? Yeah, what's the catch here? What's, what's the catch here? And I went to buy that house, and I called a, uh, a guy that was uh, going to do an inspection for me. And this is very interesting to me. He said, who are you buying the house from? I told him. He said, what ethnicity are they? I said, I don't know. I said, I grew up in Savannah. People were either black or white. Right. He said, that's not the way it's done in Boston. You need to learn who you're doing business with, whether they're Irish or Italian or Jewish. You need to tell, you need to figure that out. And I said, why is that important? Because he said it will dictate how you do business with them and how they would do business with you. I was like, wow, that was very interesting. And I went and found out that the uh, group that I was buying, the, the couple that I was buying the house from, through my buddy, were, in fact, Irish. And didn't mean anything to me, but apparently meant a lot to everybody else. So that was my first introduction to the the business of race. Right. And, you know, I, I still contend today that whether you are buying a house, selling a house, investing in a house, or whatever whatever your, your, your profession is, you have to deal with the business of race. I worked for an investment banking firm when I came out of grad school and I ran the real estate group. My first deal on the South shore of, uh, of Boston down near Cape Cod called a guy. We wanted to buy a uh, office building. I showed up and he said, I never knew you were black. <laughs> and I simply cool. said, I hope I don't disappoint you then. <laughs> and, and my point is, here again, it's the business of race. And that has always been at the forefront as I've done business. Right. And, 
you know, later on as I, you know, you, you started by sharing with the audience that my investment company had about a, a billion five uh, under management. Well, our first project, our first. Hold act- on one second. Is there something I'm hearing? Is there clicking? Yeah, it's construction. Oh, okay. Nothing we can do about that. Go ahead. Um, my, my first acquisition, I'd gone out and raised money. We can talk about that later. But my, my point is, my first acquisition was in St. Petersburg, Florida. Right. And my partner had the broker on the phone, and we went through the process. And he said something very interesting to my partner, having although never having met him. He said, you know, you don't like it down here. There are no ghettos or Negroes. <laughs> and so your partner was white? My, no, my partner is African-American. He was black. Okay, he just okay. He just thought he sounded, uh, I guess he didn't know he was black over the phone. He did not know that. Okay, yes. And so my partner. Because I guess black sounds a certain way to people, but go ahead. <laughs> my, my partner said to him that, well, that's good news. And we went on and. Um, he played that well, but that's interesting. He played that well. Absolutely. You know, he just went with the flow. All the time. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's some people would get so upset and, and emotional about that nope. response. It's, so how, how did you keep yourself? Because, you know, most, uh, some people would get pissed off about that, right? At the moment, sure. like, like, so how do, you keep your, how do you keep your emotions out of that moment when people well, deal with... The, the objective is to win. Okay. And you've you got to understand that the goal is to win. You know, as my grandfather used to say, if that guy's 30 years old, he took 30 years to mess him up. You're not going to change him in one minute. Right. So deal with what's in front of you, not what you want him to be. And I've always deal with looked, what's in front of you, not what you want him to be. Not what you want him to be. And we just said, you know, the guy's a racist. Now, what can I do about that? Nothing. You can still get business done, though. I can get my business done. Yep. And we moved forward. And when you're buying institutional grade property, one of the there's a there's a question and answer, or basically an interview process. You know, they ask you where you're getting your money from, how fast you can close. Well, we sat down. I, uh, we we were one of the top two offers, offers. And at the end of the day, the we were going through the question and answer um, uh, process, and the, right. the questions are pretty standard. Right. And but on this particular day, we, my partners and I sat around the conference room table around the, the squawk box, and the broker said, "Let me ask you something, Mr. Mayfield." I said, "Yes." Did you attend a historically black college? I said, I did. He said, we have no further questions. One question. And he called us back later and he said, you guys didn't win the bid to buy the property. I said, wait a minute. (laughs) I thought we were the highest bidder. You were, but we're not going to sell the property to you. And I said, why not? He said, because the tenants won't be comfortable with you. I said, well, let me make sure I got this straight. I buy the building. Though... Your tenants become my tenants. So what do you care? Yeah. And he said, doesn't matter. We're not going to sell the building to you. Wow. So uh, that was a defining moment for me because my first inclination was to sue. That would have been mine too, but I'm a lawyer, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I I sat around the table and talked to my partners. Two of my partners, black, one Puerto Rican, one white. And I said, we can spend a lot of money on a lawsuit or we can rethink our strategy and talk about winning all the time. The very next project that came on, came on the radar screen for us was in Charlotte, North Carolina. My partner had identified an office building we should buy. And he said, we should go after this property. I said, do you remember Florida? And he said, yeah. I said, how far do you think Florida is from North Carolina? <laughs> he said, I said, your problem is you grew up in the, in, in the Midwest. You grew up in Detroit. I said, I grew up in the South. And today, I don't know if we're dealing with the new South or the old South. But I know that we've got to be very careful about how we approach the deal. And here's what we did. We decided we were going to go after the property. But we were not going to show up when they had walkthroughs or tours, we were not going to identify ourselves in a walkthrough or tour. We would go there as a potential tenant and ask all the records questions that we would ask if we were going to buy the building. And then we would, we would never, we owned a separate company and we would, we would talk to the 
the uh, management about that separate company. We would never name my company, my investment company. And when the time came to bid, we bid under the name of the investment company. And wow. we, we were in the final two. And I said, okay, here we go again. We're down to the finals. Let's, and, you know, the, the broker called and said, all right, we want to do the interview. And we said, let's do the interview. And the broker said, we want to know who you have bought a similar building from in Charlotte. Okay. <laughs> we like, okay, that's the home cooking question. Right, yeah. And we concluded that um, it wasn't my thought, it was my general counsel's thought, that she immediately piped up and said, first of all, we don't disclose who we sell or buy to, buy from or sell to. I'm like, oh man, that's brilliant. Because we don't have to disclose it now. Because <laughs> we've we not done any business with anybody right, in Charlotte. Right, right, right. And they said, well, do you have any references in Charlotte? And uh, we said, we do. Our banker, African-American, was with Wyckovia Bank in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we said, here's the name of our banker. We called him up, told him the guy was going to call him. And he laid it on, and we, we bought the building. But here's what we did. We did this for two years. We never showed up to show we owned the building. Wow. Never did for two years. So and people didn't. So it sounds like you were, you were, you were, you were, you were playing, you were playing the game going, being really stealth about it. So people didn't, people didn't need to know you're black because technically it shouldn't even matter. But well, it, we, 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 we know it shouldn't matter, but it we know that it, it does, does matter. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and if, if that was going to be the game, we can either choose not to play or and, to play. And be sit out and have no, have no chips, have no ability to be on the court. That's right. Exactly right. So we decided we were going to play. Two years. Um, I took my daughter to Spelman for when she started college. And I, just, I woke up one morning and I said, it's time for them to know who the owner is. And I was sitting in Atlanta and I called up my partner and said, call them over. And, uh, How much did you have under, under assets at this time? We had about $250 million. And I, uh, I called up my partner. You were big enough where it didn't matter. Well, it, 250 in the institutional private equity business is not a big number. 250 million is not a big number. It's not a big number. Oh, wow. What is, <laughs> <laughs> I'm dealing in the wrong number. I said, I'm in the wrong business, man. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead. So, uh, so yes, it did matter. Uh, we, uh, I called my partner and said, call him and tell him I'm coming. I meet him in front of the building at the the management company, which we kept in place. They were part they were part owners with another group that sold us the building, but they didn't know who they were selling it to. I showed up at ten minutes to two. I stood in front of the building, and this is August. I had on my best suit, my best tie, my best shirt, and it was sweltering hot, very humid. And I stood stood out in front of that building, and I waited. And at two o'clock, a young man came down, young white guy come came down, and he looked at me. I'm standing in front of the building and he walked to the corner and he turned around and looked at me, came back up and he walked up to me and he said, excuse me, sir. Have you been here long? I'm saying, about 10 minutes. He said, um, has anybody else been here? <laughs> no. I said, are you looking for someone? He said, yeah, but you wouldn't know them. I said, well, try me. I know, I know a lot of people. <laughs> he said, I'm looking for Mr. Mayfield. I said, I am Chauncey Mayfield. Oh, what he was said, that face like? I'm, oh, oh my goodness. It was a face of terror. <laughs> <laughs> he said, hold on. He walked to the, from the front of the building to the curb. He takes out his cell phone and he's looking back at me like I'm about to run it. And he's going, yep, mm-hmm, yep, yep. And he's looking back at me like, oh, this has got to be a bad joke. Came back over to me, he said, my boss is coming down. I said, great. I'd love to meet your boss. We've talked on the phone a number of times. Funny. His boss came down and he said, you're John T. Mayfield? I said, yeah. He said, uh, is there anybody else that's going to join us today? I said, nope, just me. <laughs> he said, um, I thought you had partners. I said, yeah, but they're in Detroit. Uh, just me. It's just be me. 
And he said, They're still black too, sorry. Oh, Go okay. ahead. <laughs> sorry to the point. <laughs> and so he said, uh, look, Okay, let's go upstairs. So we went upstairs, and I talked to him for a couple of years, and he kept saying, so so you're the owner. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like the real owner, not like the equity owner. Like, like you probably got all versions of the same, the same question 10 times. 10 times. And so as I finished meeting with him, I he said, you want me to walk, want, want me to accompany you down? No, just get on the elevator to the first floor, right? Yeah. So uh, I go to the first floor. And one of the things that my dad has always told me is that you always acknowledge people that are working. Yep. Very you know, important. My janitor, dad taught me the same thing. Yep. You know, the guy that's raking the yard. So I walk over to the desk and the security guard, an older African-American gentleman. And uh, I said, excuse me, sir, I want to introduce myself. He said, hold on. He said, can I ask you one question? I said, yeah. He said, yesterday... The boss man came and told me, today at 2 o'clock, the owner's going to be coming through those doors. I said, okay. He said, 205, you came through with my boss. You wouldn't be the owner, would you? <laughs> <laughs> you got black people shocked, like, what is going on here? He said, I said, sir, I, I, I am. He said, oh, Lord, wait till I go home and tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, the things like that, that you can't help but laugh about, but it's very much serious and it's very much real in the business of race when you're doing business. Well, yeah. And that's, that's so important. You, you just so much you can take away there when I, you know, the expectations that obviously white people have are lower, Yep. <clears throat> but also African-Americans expectations are lower. Have no clue. Right, which is something we get. How do we change the, when we talk about changing the narrative and changing the mindset to get more African Americans to be entrepreneurs, to be comfortable saying that this is not imposter syndrome, right. this is who we can be and should be? How do you, how do we get there based upon your experience? What would you tell upcoming entrepreneurs that go through those moments of doubt or insecurity? What do you think? Well, the, the first thing I, I would tell them, and it's, and it's not based on, my level of success is based on my experience. So the first time I decided I was going to pitch a pension fund for some money, some investment dollars, I went to their consultant and I said, would you support me in if I asked the pension fund for some money so that I can invest? And he said, sure. He said, how much are you going to ask him for? I said, $10 million. He said, don't bother. I said, what do you mean don't bother? He says, you know, they'll give you $10 million when they don't even like you. And I go, <laughs> what? And I said, well, well, how much money should I ask him for? He said, ask him for $100 million. And I just kept looking at him going, come on, don't play me. He said, I'm serious. Ask them for $100 million. And I went home and I thought about it. And I said, am I that far off? that the big number in my mind was $10 million. The real number was $100 million. And this guy has decided he's going to tell me what to ask for. By the way, he writes the recommendation to the pension board on whether or not they should give me the money. Right. And he said, don't bother asking for $10 million. Ask him for 100 So a couple of weeks later, I walked in and asked for $100 million. And Rob, here's the scary part. They said yes so fast, I didn't even know they said yes. I'm sitting there waiting. Okay, you guys going to vote? <laughs> Are you waiting for me to leave? And they're like, why are you still sitting there? And I said, well, I didn't know if you are going to actually take the vote now right. or, you know, you're going to take it in private. I said, we took the vote. I said, what was the vote? I said, yeah, we give you the money. Wow. And, 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 and I was stunned. I was, I was absolutely stunned. So to, your, to the point I'm trying to make here is, as an entrepreneur or as a wannabe entrepreneur, the problem I see, particularly in the African-American community, is that we don't think big enough. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. That, I, was like, I think there's a Robert Greene, The 48 Laws of Power, one of my favorite books. He's been on the show. Uh -huh. You know, there's, there's a rule say, you know, think like a king and get treated like one. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And, you know, you, you have to be able to think big. Right, which is 250 million I thought was big, so I didn't think bigger too. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, I tell you, you know, I was, I, I attended a, uh, a private party in New York, um, in Manhattan one night, and it was all private equity, real estate guys, pension fund guys. And my flight left at 10 o'clock from LaGuardia. Right. The party was going strong. And about 8.30, I come downstairs and I'm about, and I'm trying to get a cab so I can get out to the airport to get on my, my plane. And this guy, I was, as I was waiting for a cab, he said, um, so you, you're, you're in the pension fund business? I said, yeah. He said, uh, I am too. He said, how much money do you have under management? And I think by then we probably had $300 million. I said, $300 million. He said, let me tell you something. At $300 million, you get invited to the party. Right. At a billion you get a seat at the table at the party. So your objective is to get to a billion. <laughs> All right, there you go. That's good to know. Good objective. Get to a billion. That's a good objective. All right, said, there you go. No, said, that's, that's, that's the first thing you need to understand. The second thing you need to understand, when you get to a billion, you won't be running for that plane. That plane will be waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> those are good goals. I said, well, I guess I have something to aspire to. But, but the point I'm trying to make here is that while we venture out as a, as, as a community, we venture out as entrepreneurs to, 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 to be entrepreneurs, but we're scared to think big. Yeah. And if you're scared to think big, why are you in this? Why, why are you doing this? And because the, the investment market, the, the, the lending market are geared towards big deals. And, you know, as when I started my, 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 real estate uh, private equity firm, I went to New Jersey and this is before I, I went back to uh, the, the city of Detroit gave me my first hundred million dollars. And I went to New Jersey and uh, pitched the, uh, the uh, head of the pension fund there. And he said, no, nah, well, we're not interested. I said, okay, well help me learn. Why aren't you interested? He said, you're not asking for enough money. He said, let me tell you something. I got a billion dollars to invest over 12 months. And if I give you 10 and I gave the next guy 10, next thing I know, I got a thousand, 10 million guys. But if I got a hundred million, all I need is 10 of you. Right. And I meet my objective. And that made me think about, begin to think differently is that number one, we need to, we need to, as a community, learn to think big. Number two, we need to know our business and know the numbers of our business. Because oftentimes I get approached with, would you invest with me or invest in my company? And I said, okay, well, how much are you going to invest in, in inventory the first 12 months? I don't know. Right. Come on. If you don't know the numbers, what's going to give me comfort that, you, that, that I can get comfortable with you? Right. So think big. Know your business, know your numbers. And I, I mean, literally, as a startup organization, know every number in your business. I could tell you when I started my business, I can tell you how much we spent on telephone for the last six months, every month. Because I had to get a grip around my expenses in order to manage them. Right. And if I can't manage my expenses, I don't care how much money I'm bringing in. It, yep. it will never be enough. The, 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 the uh, third thing is, and if, if you can bear with me while I share the story with no, you, is ahead. that there's a thing that I didn't coin this term. A buddy of mine coined the term. He calls it black man and black woman's pride. Okay. Dangerous. So in the, when I came out of business school, the the economy in, in Boston about five years after I started doing my real estate deals, economy fell apart. I didn't have a project. I didn't have a deal. I didn't have any income. Picked up the phone. I called a very dear friend of mine who worked for one of the biggest real estate companies in the city of Boston. And I asked him, can I come down and see him? And went down to see him. And we sit there and we chit chat for a moment. And he said, um, you know, how are the kids? Kids great. How's the wife? Wife's great. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to get the train on back up to, up on the other side of town. And he, as I walked towards the door, 
he said, and this is a white guy, he said, hey, I'm going to tell you something. You need, need to get rid of that disease. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the disease that you have. And I said, I, I, I don't get it. What are you talking about? He said, sit down. He said, I call it pride, black man's disease. And I just looked at him and said, I don't understand what you mean. He said, so you're telling me you got on a train, came down to my office, sit in that chair. We chit chat about the family, the kids going to school, what's going on in the marketplace. You get up and, and leave. Is that why you came down here? I said, no, that's not why I came down here. He said, your pride wouldn't let you tell me. Right. And I said, I, I got to be honest with you. You're right. He said, what is it that you need? I said, real estate market's gone. I don't have a project. I don't have any income. I said, do you have any consulting projects? He said, I do. And he said, do you want them? <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, you know, he said, how many can you have? I said, probably three. And he said, okay. I said, hold on. I want you to take this down on the second floor. You wrote something out and get your retainer. And by the way, on your way back uptown, see something about that disease. <laughs> and that was the most telling moment for me because one of the things he said, he said, if you were white, you sat in that chair, you would say, hey, man, I can't pay my light bill. I can't pay my mortgage. I don't have any income coming in and I can't buy groceries. Can you help me? He said, I asked him, and he said it. He said, if I ask a brother, say, oh, man, things are a little challenging right now, but we're doing okay. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, mortgage is due. And so I, I learned that you've got to bury the pride and ask. Yeah. And so the third thing I would say is learn to ask. You never know what somebody will do to help you. There are people that have helped me. And I ask myself, why are they helping me? My, when I raised my first fund for my, my private equity firm, I didn't know how to write their proposal. And through a mutual friend and a friend and a friend, this guy calls me. And he said, hey, I understand you're trying to do a pitch book for your investments. Right. To raise a fund. I said, yeah. He said, well, we've raised eight funds. Okay. He said, I want to help you. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, listen to me. I'm not going to leave you until you get your money. And every night I went home, why? He said, we'll talk every Wednesday morning at nine o'clock. I'll give you an assignment. You do it. We come back on Wednesday. And I kept saying, why? And one day I asked him, why? Why are you doing this? Right. He's a white guy. He said, because there are too few African-Americans in this industry. And you have the, I mean, you're in it. Now we have to grow you. And I want to help you. And he said, oh, by the way, my sister teaches at Howard. And, that, and that's something really important that you did. This, this, Because we talk about racism. We talk about what we have to overcome. But just like you, I'm sure many African-Americans that have success have also pointed to a white mentor or a white friend or colleague that helped, that, that, that was fair-minded and wanted them to advance. So we have to talk about bo both sides of the coin there. Well, you, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up. Let me just share one story with you. So... When I got started, I, I didn't have, I had 13 million under assets, under management, uh, assets under management. And I was trying to borrow $3 million for another project. And I went to, I, I want to say literally every lender in the state of Michigan. And they all said no. And, you know, every day it was a chore getting myself back up to make that pitch only to get no. And there was a guy that was, was helping me do business development. He had played professional football in Houston, Texas. He said, Chauncey, when I was playing ball in Houston, there's a guy who was in the banking business. And I think he's at Wyckovia Bank in Charlotte now. Let me see if I can find him. So I called him up in about, and he said, sure, I'll come to Michigan. He's in Charlotte. I'll come to Michigan to... Uh, to meet with you. Well, because of our schedules, it took about three weeks for him to get up. Well, when he got to Michigan, I needed a, a loan now for $65 million. 
I could care less if I did the $3 million deal. So he's sitting there, and he's telling me how they could do the $3 million, no problem. And I said, I got to tell you something. Thank you for coming. But I now need $65 million. <laughs> it's a big leap. Three, three to 65, I can do my best. $62 million leap, but go ahead. And so... I said, this was, this was after your friend taught you to ask big, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so he said, uh, you, you were taking this advice. I said, we, we took on a new portfolio. We need to refinance it. I can assure you it's 50 cents. I mean, 50% loan to value. He said, Oh, okay. He's an African-American. He said, okay, I'm going back home tonight. I'm going to check with my boss, see if we have an interest. He called me up and he said, Yep, we have an interest in looking at your deal. My boss said, call this guy, this guy, and this guy. And I said to him, in no uncertain terms, I said, do they speak the tribal language? <laughs> he said, no. I said, then I'm not calling. You got on a plane to come see me. So, and I know how banking works. So they get the credit for my business, but you made the business happen. No, you tell your boss, I said, no. And he said, okay. And I relied on the greed factor. Yeah. There was just too much money on the table. So we have to, is it, just I want to stop on that point because I don't think a lot of black businesses, maybe there are some more that I don't know about now, but I don't think we have that kind of collective mentality that you displayed right then. Sure. Understanding that to advance, you know, you have to do things like that to make Absolutely. sure. You have to, you have to understand that if, you know, if you want to see others advance and have equity, you have to when you have when you're there at the table, you got to make sure other people can arrive at the table. Absolutely. So, I'm sure you've seen that. Mm -hmm. Talk about a time maybe you've dealt with that other side. I think this might be a good time to actually talk about some of the struggles you had. Sure. Because you know, as we talked about, you know, African Americans can be good to helping each other, but we can also operate as crabs in a bucket. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, without a doubt. And, and and I'm sure you've had some experiences and some, we'll say some opportunities to learn or some failures. Talk about that and what you might have learned and how that journey sure. has shaped you now and what you've learned from it. it, it let me just finish this story because I think it's, do. it's instructive about how there's also reverse racism. Okay. Okay. So my guy calls him back. And he said, my boss said, I'm the guy on the deal. Oh, okay. He said, but they want to send a team up to your shop and go through your financials and your controls and all that kind of good stuff. And by the way, the guy leading the, the, uh, the team is head of credit for all of Wycovia. I said, am I that important? And so I said, fine. They, they sent up six people. And as uh, the guy walked in, he introduced himself. I'm not going to mention his name, but I, he introduced himself. And I remember thinking to myself, we don't have a snowball chance in hell. This guy is straight out of central casting redneck. No way. No way. Mannerisms, the speech, all the things we were taught growing up in the South, that he's not going to give us a fair shot. And he and his team went through my financials, went through my controls with my CFO for two days. And on the, uh, the end of the, the, the second day, we had a meeting in the conference room to, to uh, talk about his findings. And I said to my, I remember saying to my general counsel, I don't even know why we're having a meeting. He's not going to approve us for anything. And that guy sat down at the table and he said, look, we went through all your books. We went through your financials. And we want to tell you we're pleased. And that was like, uh-oh. And he said, and the, and the guy who's the banker was in the room too, he said, he looks at him and he said, we not only should do the $65 million, we should do every deal they want to do. Wow. <laughs> so, you, so, so, so your judgment was wrong. This My time. judgment was wrong. And I said, Chauncey, you got some racism in you. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at that guy, the most unlikely person that I'd ever thought to approve us for anything we wanted. We borrowed $300 million from Wycovia Bank. Based wow. on that conversation. So my point is this, is that understand the business of race when you do business. But don't go in with preconceived notions about what it is. Right. You know, it, it, even if they are racist, 
turn that into, don't get taken in by the, the bait that baits you into being angry and losing your focus of what you're trying to accomplish. Yep. That's the most important thing. Well, be productively paranoid. Be, be productively you paranoid. You gotta be productive, right? Right. If you're, if you're paranoid, it just paralyzes you through fear, through ignorance. You can't Absolutely. get anything accomplished. But if you're naive, you also won't get anything accomplished. Yes. No, 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 no. We know that, there, that racism exists. And we know that there's the business of racism. And the business of racism is, is, is present in every business that you do, whether you realize it or not. You know, I have the fortune of of, uh, of of being named Chauncey Mayfield, so they don't know what I am until I show up. That's the same thing with Rob Richardson. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty, yeah. And so I show up and you go, uh-oh. <laughs> hey. I'll, I'll tell you just one story, and then I'm, I'm going to answer your your other question. And, and, and here again, I learned this from my dad, is that um, in, in the early 60s, he transitioned as, as into a criminal lawyer, and he, and he was a hell of a criminal lawyer. And this woman came to his office one day, and her husband, her son had been locked up. And they're they're originally from Tennessee, and now they're in Savannah, Georgia. And and, and the son says to the mother, "This guy right here is a great criminal lawyer. Go get him." And she came down, and she met with my dad. And she comes in, and my dad is you know old Southern gentleman. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. And he's, she's, and she starts to cry. And he said, ma'am, you know, I, I understand, you know, the matter that you may be talking to me about is, is stressful, um, but believe me, we can help you. And she said, no, you don't understand. And she, he said, sure, I understand. She said, my son sent me here to get you. I said, okay. My dad said, okay. And she said, um, he doesn't like black people. Oh. <laughs> it's gonna be a problem. <laughs> and this guy was in serious trouble. And so he said, It's not a problem. I have a partner. He's in the other office. Yeah. He's white. <laughs> he, you know, you I'm happy to introduce she said, No, 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 no. He sent me to get you. <laughs> <laughs> he likes freedom more. <laughs> he likes freedom more. He decided. He's, she said, I gotta go back and tell him. She said, Okay, I mean that's fine. Go back and, and tell him. And she went back and told him, and he was like, like you said, he likes freedom. <laughs> and, and, and the interesting thing is that they retained my dad. He got him out. That guy and my dad became the best of friends. Wow. That actually gives me some hope in this crazy, toxic environment. You know, we've been, uh, we've been through worse as a country. I tell some of my white progressive friends, they say, we've never been through anything like this. I said, yeah, we have. Well, at least we have. We have, have. Yeah. <laughs> This is this stuff is not new, right? Um, and we're going to be able to survive whatever happens, uh, absolutely, right? So that's 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 how I look at it. But you know that that's comforting to hear that you have somebody who hated black people but can learn to be best friends and get past their prejudice. That yeah. that, that tells me that despite our current absolute craziness, that uh, you know that there's hope. Yeah, yeah, no, and and, and we can't get tied up. No, I, I I do believe in fighting for rights. Don't get me wrong. Me too. I, I think we're on the same page there. I don't. I, I don't we, take you as a passive person. <laughs> no, no. Good. It's so. It, it, but the point is, is that you can't get tied up in letting them distract you from what you're trying to accomplish. Wow, you can't get tied up in letting yourself get distracted. Yeah, you, you just can't do that. I mean, focus. Is there any? So, is there any? Just to talk about that because it just brings up a, a good thought. Mm -hmm. Do you have any practice or routines to not? To, so you didn't allow yourself to get dragged down into the emotions or distractions because I think people want to want to do that, right. but often find themselves into a, a habit of just reacting or letting their emotions. Any any just practical things you did to keep yourself grounded? Well, you remember I grew up in the civil rights movement. True. So you grew up with this, yeah. and 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 I, I, I mean, I was my dad. I mean, my dad and I were inseparable, and so. We were doing the Poor People's March in, in Charleston, South Carolina. My dad was up front. I was back in the crowd. And I didn't realize that I was walking over the yellow line. You had to stay on one side of the yellow line when you marched. And I was walking over there. And there was a state trooper that pulled up behind me on a motorcycle and gunned the engine. It scared me to death. And so my and, – and, and I remember getting so mad that – but I knew – 
if I had taken a swing at that state trooper or did something stupid, it wouldn't just affect me. Right. It would affect everybody that was in that march. Yeah. And it's the same principle when I look at, you know, you go into somewhere and, and someone does something that's offensive. It doesn't just affect me. Three minutes of bad behavior can result in a lifetime of punishment. Amen. Three minutes, all you got to do. Yep. And I tell these young boys, I said, that gun you have in your waist, by the time you pull it out, you shoot it. It's three minutes. You shoot someone, you've got a lifetime of problems. Yep. It's not worth it. It's not. It's not worth it. And so uh, just having the discipline to ignore it or confront it, but I'm not going to turn crazy over it. Yeah. It, but that train, you can't, you can't discount the training of being in the civil rights movement of sure. your, of your father, which some others don't have. So I just like to tell people how to develop better habits and, and uh, hopefully it doesn't all have to be learned through bad experience. Hopefully you can <laughs> learn from other people That's to right. not do something like that. That's right. But let's talk about failures. Sure. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's important for people to understand the path. The path is never linear for anyone. <laughs> no. It's not. Let's talk about some of your path that hasn't been linear. Uh, I know you had some struggles when you dealt with your hometown city of Detroit yes. and, and dealing with the current mayor who was in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. Uh, talk about that experience, what you learned from that experience and what you want to teach others from it. Well, here is my the thing I learned that. And just to give everybody a background. So, you know, you, it was um, Kwame Kilpatrick who was currently in prison for like 28 years, which is, which is actually more than any other corruption mayor I've seen. That's, that's, right. that's neither here nor there. Um, make your own judgments there. But, um, you know, you were involved before him in the yes. pension system. So mm -hmm. you've been involved for a long time. I think people see the headlines. They're like, you know, it just says Chauncey Mayfield. And it looks like corruption. And that's all people see because sure. the press doesn't write for details. They don't write for context. They write for headlines. There you go. Tell people what actually happened and what you learned from it. <laughs> what happened was uh, uh, my company, we, we invested in eight states. And out of those eight states, we were probably in 15 cities. In each city, either at Thanksgiving or at Christmas time, we would make a major donation to um, nonprofits that dealt with children or women, women's causes. And, and, and I got to be candid with you, it was sort of a, a dual purpose, right? December, we're getting up towards the end of the year. We look, you know, my CFO does a forecast and say, Oh boy, you know, we're going to pay this in taxes. Exactly. So let's, let's make sure we're as efficient as possible. Like, like every other business does, and like right, every other business does. does right now is doing right now. And, and so what, um, we'd given to, um, nonprofits, uh, that dealt with women and children's causes in every city, but Detroit. And, the mayor's people approached me about giving to his foundation. Right. Um, we in turn reached out to the SEC because we were re SEC registered investment advisors and said, Hey, if we gave the mayor's foundation $50,000, do we have a problem? They wrote back. No, you don't. All right, cool. So they gave the, the mayor um, foundation $50,000. And that was that I thought. Um, and, in July, I forget which year, I was out in California taking my daughter to camp. And I get a call from my my assistant, and she said, hey, the FBI just left from here. Wow. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? She said, they want to talk to you. And I said, about what? She said, they wouldn't tell me. That's never a good sign. No, that's not a good sign. So um, I, um, she said, here's the telephone number of the guy that was doing all the talking. I said, all right, I'll call him. Oh, which before you get there, let mm -hmm. me just tell you what I learned in my criminal defense class, the right. procedure. <laughs> Something is the only thing I remember <laughs> taking away. Uh -huh. He would just say, boys and girls, what is the lesson? Never, ever, 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 ever under any circumstance, talk to the feds. Finish. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I should have sought your advice. Yes. Uh -huh. And I called him up. And they said, hey, look, uh, they were very casual. The, the guy I talked to was very casual. He said, hey, you know, next time you're in town, come by and see us. Sure. And I remember thinking, we just want to talk. What if I never go back to town? What if I never go back to Detroit? And I, and I did, and I went up to see him, and they said, look, let me ask you something. 
You gave Kwame Kilpatrick's foundation $50,000. I said, that's true. And they said, um, how did he go about extorting it out of you? I said, what are you talking about? He didn't extort it from me. And he said, well, we think he did. That's great, but I know what, what happened. And I said, understand something. When Kwame Kilpatrick ran for the second term, the second term, I supported his opponent. His opponent's daughter worked for me. And I publicly said Kwame Kilpatrick is a juvenile delinquent. So there's no love between us, but there's no reason for me to lie on him either. And um, I said, okay. I left. Didn't have a lawyer, just walked in and talked to him. Yep. Which I would never advise you to yeah. do ever, ever, ever. No, you're right. <laughs> mistake number one. Yeah. And then the second time they called me, went back down again. And they said, all right, we want to talk about. Without a lawyer again? Yeah. Uh, this extortion. That was that black man pride. Too. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it definitely was. So. And I said, I haven't done anything wrong. So um, I went down again, same question. I said, hey, I told you. There was no extortion. I gave him 50000 And I said, okay. Two months later, call me again. True to form. I showed up again. Yep. And they said, you need to start telling the truth. I am telling the truth. Mm, I don't think so. And that's the first time it hit me. I said, uh-oh. Yep. We got a problem. Hey, when they get a narrative made up, it's made up. It's made up, and they won't change from it. And so what happened was— um, And they got enough resources to wear you out. And I'm, oh, <laughs> yes, they do. What happened was, after that point, um, they called—I I, I hired a, a firm out of uh, Washington. I hired a local firm. And I hired— uh, Scott uh, Bowden, right? Uh, I hired Scott A. Scott Bowden, who yeah. was also a friend of mine. Yep. And, and he's uh, in the right fraternity, right? With Cap Alpha. Uh, just I so know, you know. <laughs> I know. I know. When I first he's met He's an Omega. I'm not going to hold it against you. Know, when ahead. I f first met Scott, he told me that all his criminal clients were cues. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. All right. That sounds like Scott. Uh, yeah. And so we, we um, I hired Scott's firm. And, you know, he reached out to him. And like, what's, what's the deal? Well, we think he bribed. He uh, bribed the mayor. Scott brought that back to me. I said, okay, if I bribed him, please tell me where I bribed him and when I bribed him. Right. And what they said was there was such tension between myself and the mayor when he won the second time. It was, you could cut it with a knife, and, at, and I had a lot of business from the city of Detroit. And so, so there wasn't anybody that ever gave to the mayor after after mayor's won. That happens a lot. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt, without yeah. a doubt. And but so they went. They pivot from that to say, well, we think that um, we believe that you bribed the mayor. I didn't bribe the mayor. Yeah. So it went from that first. It was. The, the mayor 50, was, was extorting you, you right. to you bribe the mayor. Exactly. Either way, they need a narrative that how, what to do with this amount of money that was given so they can make a better case against the mayor. Yeah, that's, what they, that's what they wanted, right? That, that's I what mean, they wanted. They it's wanted not to mayor. say that because I'm sure he did do some stuff wrong. Yeah. Let me just say that. But, they, but, what, but what they look to do is paint a narrative and they don't care how it gets painted. Not or, at all. Or, or, who, or who suffers in, 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 in painting that narrative. And I say that, damage. I, I say that not just you. I've seen that happen to some other people who, you know, didn't go to jail or anything, but they still were, they were carnage. Yeah. Just because someone wanted to paint a narrative, say, we need you to say, we need you to be X yeah. so we can get Y. Yeah. And that's all they care about is getting y, from X to Y. And they don't care what happens in between. Yeah. As long as they get from X to Y. Right. To prove their case. Well, so we, we go down this road and Scott reached out to the DOJ and, uh, and ask them about, okay, well, you know, you say he bribed, what, what evidence do you have? Well, the backdrop is this, is that when the mayor won the second time, and I called him a juvenile delinquent. Right. Uh, and I had- They a, used the interview you gave him. <laughs> <laughs> so, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and they so, said, we can use this to use against them. Yeah. 
And and what 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 happened was that the there was a new treasurer um, that came to town, and and he was sitting on the pension. He sat on the pension fund board, and he saw our first presentation. And we were making our annual presentation to the board, saying, "Here's how right. much money we had <clears throat> given you guys." And and as usual, we knocked it out of the park. Um, we were the highest performing investment manager in the city of Detroit, regardless of asset class. And he was impressed. And he went back, shared the mayor, told the mayor about us. And the mayor, yeah, I know those guys. You know. Um, and I believe, and I, I don't have any hard proof, but um, they were trying to pull business back from them because the mayor was, I'm not on the mayor's favorite list. Anyway. Right. And um, at that point, the treasurer came to me and said, hey, I got to help you bury this hatchet between you right. and the mayor. I said, okay, cool. At the time. And the treasurer got in trouble too, didn't he? Uh, oh, he's doing 11 years. Yeah. So, But you don't But you don't know all this. The treasurer knows this and things like that. But it's like it's. Yeah, I don't know any of this. The point is, though, the FBI or the others, they want to make their case for all this happening. And then this needed to connect. Basically, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, basically, it needed to connect. And at, you, at one point, they had uh, the mayor and I being, you know, best buddies. Right. But if I walked through that door and he was sitting there, he wouldn't know who I was. Right. Back then. He was like, yeah, and, and seen the face, but I can't remember right. his name. Uh, but what's the, le- what, I guess, what is your, what's your takeaway from that? Because, I mean, clearly there's some things you probably, if you looking back, you would do differently. Uh, absolutely. What do you advise young entrepreneurs dealing in politics, too? Because we got to deal in this, in this, mm-hmm. in this area. How how would you how do you, how do you go about this? Because it seems to be a really great line that's hard to figure out. Well, it's a great line for us. Uh, it's not necessarily a great line for other people. No, oh, true. Um, it, it's a, it, but if you're going to play, first of all, you need to understand the rules of the game, meaning how much you can give to a mayor. Yep. What you can give in kind that doesn't put you over the line or put you in in, in jeopardy. You need to understand that. And don't do anything more than that. Yep. I always tell people that it's, 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 it's actually, I look at it as, as there are three lines. It's like, uh, you know, there's the line of perception. There's the line of what's ethical. And there's the line of what's legal. Yep. And I tell people, you want to be all the way on this side. You want to figure out what is it like with perception that you can say that if it comes out, you can explain it in the newspaper. Yep. Even if it's legal, because if it's legal, I think say for us, it's different. It don't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if right. it looks, if it's perceived, they can make it be illegal. That's right. And that's I, so that's kind of my lesson to people in politics. And that's the lesson that I've tried to stay in as I've been in politics. That's kind of been my lesson sure. to say, like, look, if I can, as long as I can explain it and I can, and it's in a newspaper, I can explain it, then it's good. If I have trouble articulating it, don't do it. Don't do it. it. it don't, don't the do wrong it. question is, this looks weird, but is it legal? If you're ha- asking that question, it's just, no. you just don't want to be no. on that side. I, I've seen that. And, play and, out. And, and never, ever buy into the concept. They'll never know. Oh, or that you can operate like they do. Go ahead. <laughs> right. neither, neither one of those things are true. Because the first the rules time, will be applied. You know, the first time the FBI shows up, flashes a badge and asks you a question, that person said, I'll never tell, starts to talk. Like immediately. Immediately. Yeah. You, you know, I and, and this is a bad example, but it's the one I think hits home the most. Sometimes dealing with a politician, it's like dating a woman that you don't know has the has a, a, a venereal disease. Oh. <laughs> That's a hell of an analogy, but okay. <laughs> you don't know what the history of that person has been. So while that person may be doing right by you, they may be dirty over here. And it's that dirt over there that's going to bring them to you. And, and, and that's exactly what happened to me. Right. And what happened was the, 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 the treasurer kept saying, I got to figure out a way to put you guys together. So two of my partners had young kids and we were traveling every year. And, you know, I was traveling about 250,000 miles a year. And so we decided to look at either buying a plane or buying a fractional interest in a private plane. Right. And, and so my partner said, you know, let's do it. And I said, the problem is I've never been on a private plane. And so I said, why don't, why don't I uh, take a couple of trips and see if this is comfortable for me? 
Right. And I, my family and I came to, to Florida at one point, and it wasn't long enough. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to get some of my boys, and we're going to go right. to Vegas, play some golf, see some shows. And I reached out to the treasurer and said, hey, man, would you like to come with us? The plane held eight. And the next thing you know, he in turn invites the mayor. Oh, yep. And I went to my general counsel and said, do you think this is a good opportunity to kind of bury the hatchet? Or am I going to get in trouble by putting him on on the plane? And she checked, and there was no, no. Uh, she passed the legal test, but not the perception test. There it is. There was a perception test. You're right. And I put him on the plane, and we went 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 out to Vegas. So when I invited him, he's got to come with his security guard. He got to come with his aide. He got to come with this guy. This guy. You got naturalized. By the way, I have a I have a quick story for him for 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 uh, meeting him. I met him for the first time. I'll tell you in a second. Uh, yeah. And so. We, we flew to Vegas and we came back. And um, so it, it was nothing. I said, hey, guys, I'll play for the plane. You pay for your own hotel and all that kind of good stuff. And all that came back to bite you. Yes. I did. saw it, I saw that in the paper. And, yep, it's, they did. and they said that was part of what you did to bribe him. My quick story on him that I want to close. I met him, and I guess it was his secretary, <clears throat> during the uh, presidential debate, yep. uh, the 2008, in South Carolina. I happened to be there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that that was his secretary. <laughs> and and I didn't do any. And they 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 didn't do anything overt, right? But you know they came across as I thought they were a couple, mm-hmm. and so I didn't say anything offensive. I just said, "Oh yeah," and I, I talked. I saw her, and I said, "Oh, it was it was great meeting you and your husband." And she was snapped like, "Whoa, that's wait. We are not together. That is not my husband. I'm just his assistant." I said, oh, I'm "Okay, I'm, it's okay." I was I was just saying, <laughs> yeah, but you hit a nerve. <laughs> yeah. The very next day, very next day, that story that story launched. Really? About those two. And, you know, the rest is history, which is that's that that led to everything coming yeah. down. And the House of Cards fell on itself. And that's right. you can for those who don't know the rest of Kwame Kilpatrick, you can Google it. It's you'll find everything you need to know. That's right. Uh final question here. Final cu- final couple questions mm-hmm. actually. Legacy questions I'd like to ask. So you have a committee of three, living or dead. They can even be make believe characters, whatever. They're people that are advising you for life, for business. Who are those three people and why? Um, uh, my dad. Okay. And, you know, my, my, my dad was one of the most honest, direct people I've ever met in my life. He would just tell you the honest to God truth. Right. And it would be painful. Truth is often painful. And, uh, but he would tell you. He wound you with the truth. He sure did. <laughs> and um, the, 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 the second person um is a is a guy by the name of jonathan peck um john is a white guy okay um and i met him in the ymca one day and he needed a ride home and he was just i mean he was loud you know bullshit guy and he said i'm looking for a ride home and here's where i live and this is in boston right and i said i'll give you a ride home he said you don't live in my community i said yes i do (laughs) <laughs> and he said, no, you don't. I said, hey, look, dude, you don't have to take the ride home, but that's where <laughs> I'm going. Okay. And I, I, I went to um, a place called Belmont, a very exclusive community in Boston. And he said, where do you live? I said, it doesn't matter. I'm taking you home. You're not taking me home. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him, dropped him off his home. One of the things I did at the YMCA every day was to jog. And John, and John jogged as well. That Saturday unannounced he came and knocked on my door seven o'clock in the morning right and i came downstairs and i'm looking at him i said what are you doing here he said you want to jog and i said you don't want to jog you want to see if i live here (laughs) yeah he said well yeah some of that too and from that day forward he became one of my closest friends right um no he 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 died uh, about two years ago okay sorry and um he was god father to uh, two of my kids. Wow. And that guy, we were jogging around the Charles River in Boston one day. And I was, two weeks later, I would be finishing business school. And so we're running and John says, what are you going to do when you you finish? I said, I'm going to get the hell out of Boston. He said, why? I said, John, this is one of the most racist cities in this country. Are you kidding me? He said, no, it's not. I said, you've never been black. He said, if you believe that, I'm going to introduce you 
to all of my friends in Boston. And you tell me if they're racist. Fine, let's do it. And he did. And here's what I concluded. I don't think they're racist. I think they didn't even know how to make the connection. Which is which is the problem with racism. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, people don't understand their own bias. They, they, they don't. They don't, don't even know how to make the connection. And I said, John, these people don't even know how to get in touch with people like me. And some of those people are still friends today. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, and so John would be one. The other one is a little old lady by the name of Mabel Bryson. And we call her Mama May, and she's my grandmother. I bought my first house through my buddy that helped me find an investor. My second property was an apartment building. And I, I was $11,000 short. Put together the money for the down payment. I still needed $11,000. Right. And every year, my parents would go to South Carolina to spend Thanksgiving, Christmas with their parents. So we're sitting at, at uh, the kitchen table. And my grandmother says, son, what, what have you been doing? And my mother's an only child, and she's sitting there. And I said, Mama May, I've been trying to buy this apartment building. I'm a little short on the money. I wasn't asking her for anything. Right. And she said, son, how much money do you need? I said, I need $11,000. And she said, well, did you ask your parents? <laughs> and my parents <laughs> like, no, that ain't going to happen. You know, we, we raised him, so we know what he's capable of doing. <laughs> and she said, I'll give you the money. Wow. Now, Rob, to understand what that meant, my grandmother didn't make more than $75 a week. Whoa. She was a domestic. She worked as a as a uh, cook, cleaner, and babysitter for two white families. $75 a week. She had $11,000. Wow. And she gave me $11,000. And I bought that apartment. She grew up in a different, she grew up during the Great Depression era. Oh, yeah. You have yeah. a much greater appreciation for money once you understand how easy you can lose it, how oh, easy man. it is to lose. But I, I kept thinking, when she gave me that money, I cannot lose her money. Yeah. I don't care if I have to, if this apartment building deal doesn't work out, if I have to go out and work five jobs, I got to give her money. Back. Right. And fortunately for me, the market went up in Boston. I made a lot of money on the apartment building when I sold it. I gave her $11,000 back. I gave her another $11,000. And I went out to Sears and Roebuck and I bought her a, a, uh, a dishwasher. Wow, that is awesome. So, Final those are the three people. That's awesome. Final question. There's a billboard, Google ad, whatever, up in your, uh, uh, that represents, I should say, your life philosophy, your belief. What does that say and why? Well, what, what it says is, for me is, and, and, and it, this is, this is, you know, I, I had the pleasure, blessing of being raised by a wonderful guy that, as a side note, he made me work for a construction company one summer in Savannah, Georgia, out in heat. And I kept asking the contractor, what did I do to him? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't appreciate what he was trying to do to me. Right. And what he taught me, and I live by this philosophy today, to thy own soul. Now, you can lie to you, but you can't lie to your own self. And to your own self, be true. And I, and I try to live by that philosophy. That's a good philosophy. Talk yeah. to Mayfield. It's good to have you all, brother. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. Thank you. We'll do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.